You're listening to episode 159 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Shang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? We have the screenwriting pair Alfred Goff and Miles Miller, most recognized for creating the TV series Smallville, on the show with us today. But before we jump right in, I want to take a moment to thank Four Sigmatic, today's sponsor, supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. I am so excited about this partnership because Four Sigmatic is a superfood company whose mission is to take over the world with their delicious coffees, teas, and cacaos that are all made with functional mushrooms and adaptogens. I'm going to get into all the details about what that means at the end of the show, so be sure to hang around with me to hear more about these guys. BT Dubs, our storytellers receive a special 15% off, so be sure to head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea, and that's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash 88 cups of tea, or use your special discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Now, whether you're a longtime listener or this is your first time tuning in to 88 cups of tea, I am so glad you're here. If you're enjoying the show but haven't hit the subscribe button or submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts just yet, I would be so grateful if you could please take a moment to do that. Your reviews, yes you, give new listeners a sneak peek on what to expect from our show. And the more ratings and reviews that we get, the more we get featured so new listeners can find us and join our storyteller community and ultimately feel less alone in their creative pursuits. So thank you in advance for that. Now on to today's guests, Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. Alfred and Miles are screenwriters and showrunners who've worked extensively in film and television. This iconic duo is best known for creating the TV series Smallville and their latest show Into the Badlands on AMC Network and The Shannara Chronicles. They've also worked on films like Spider-Man 2, I Am Number 4, Lethal Weapon 4, and many, many more. More recently, Alfred and Miles have paired up to write their first novel ever called Double Exposure, which was released last month. In our conversation, we talk about how Alfred and Miles came together as a writing pair and sold their first screenplay. Those of you interested in learning tips on breaking into Hollywood as a screenwriter, you'll want to pay special attention to what they have to share about how they learned how to navigate around Hollywood and how they landed their agent. We dive deep into the importance of learning how to take criticism and surrounding yourself with a network of honest people you trust, and we get a sneak peek into their writing process and learn character building tips that will help you elevate your genre. As a side note, if you're listening and you're currently working on a project with another author, or you've always been curious about co-authoring and how that dynamic works, this episode is a really, really great one for you. Now let's jump right in because you are going to love their episode. Al and Miles, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. First of all, congratulations about Double Exposure. I'm very excited for you and the release. How exciting is it that this is your first book together? It is. I mean, your first book, period. 
first book period, period. and yes. together and period. together <laughs> i mean that's insane okay we're gonna get into a lot of that but on this podcast i love getting back into the backstory of how you first fell in love with storytelling so i know it's gonna be a little bit tricky because there's two of you so miles you're the one with the british accent and al you have our american accent so i think that'll help <laughs> differentiate yeah, that's, that's the best way to tell us, to tell us apart. <laughs> done and done all right so whoever wants to jump in first Give us a little backstory of how you first fell in love with storytelling, whether it's falling in love with reading or writing your own story at like the age of five. Any first memory? Well, interestingly, my first memory of storytelling is I loved Peter Pan as a kid. And I remember sitting down in my grandparents' uh, house at their kitchen table and drawing out what I thought the sequel would be to Peter Pan after the story ended. So that that's sort of my first vivid memory of sort of storytelling and how can I extend the story and weirdly being a screenwriter, my first introduction to sequels. So that's really the moment that I remember. And then, you know, I read a lot as a kid. I read like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and, and a lot of those kinds of books. And then once I hit my teenage years, I was really sort of falling in love with movies and seeing everything that came out. So that's sort of my progression. Amazing. And how about Miles? Well, actually, I had a similar experience. I wasn't a huge reader growing up, but I loved movies and sort of fell in love with storytelling through movies and television. And I remember when I was about five writing a sequel to Planet of the Apes. Oh, that's a better but that was more. Like a, that was more like a play. That Much was better. That whole thing completely captivated me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But then I, as I grew and became a teenager, you know, I became much more interested in literature and novels and eventually did English literature at university. And that was sort of my foray into writing. And before I went to film school, I became I wrote a novel, you know, and it never got published. But it was a first sort of foray into long form writing. That's the thing I'm curious about when you're younger. I feel like most of the authors I've had on the show, they never realize that writing a book could even be a career or maybe even writing a movie. It's just something that you always feel like is this magical kind of realm. So for both of you, when did you realize this is when I'm going to actually take action to then take the next steps of making things happen? Well, we we met at film school at USC. This is grad school. This is grad school. And we were both in the Peter Stark producers program which is really a producing program. But the thing that we learned very early on was that if you wanted to really break into Hollywood, you needed a script. So that's sort of when we turned our attention. Which seems very obvious, but really certainly wasn't (laughs) obvious to either of us before we arrived that actually the currency of Hollywood is screenplays. That if you have a great screenplay, it is the fastest, the quickest route into getting a movie made, which is obviously the goal. So that really, it seems obvious, but it wasn't and became, um, it's also great as a writer, you, it requires nothing. You can sit in a, in a Dell Taco or McDonald's and sit there and write as a student and you didn't need, if you wanted to be a director, you need money, you need to buy film, you needed to buy cameras, you need to, it needed to be a big thing. Whereas as a screenwriter, it was just you as a single person or us as a duo sitting in various, you know, coffee shops writing. I'm going to rewind a little bit. How'd you know to choose USC's Peter Stark producing program? What was it about that program that really called to you and made you realize this is the one I want to dedicate my time to? 
for me, after I graduated undergrad, I worked in public relations in New York City for a couple of years, but always knew I wanted to be in the movie business. I just wasn't quite sure how. So I started to explore film schools, and the only two I wanted to go to were USC and UCLA. And so when I was exploring their programs, I realized that they had this producer's program which seemed to be a little more all-encompassing and it sort of touched on everything that I thought I was interested in and um, would give you a great overview into how, you know, the business worked. So that was really, for me, you know, what I did. Both, both schools had one, UCLA and USC, and I got into USC and took out a car loan, bought a car, packed everything, moved across country. For me, <laughs> you know, I was always interested in it, but actually, bizarrely, I was just I had just been accepted to be a prep school teacher at a boys boarding school teaching English and rugby, which I don't play. Um, <laughs> and my mother, because I was always interested in film, my mother had looked and got the various prospectuses and stuff for various film schools. And went through them. And this one, she thought, oh, it looked pretty good. So she actually got all the applications for me, did all the work. I applied and then got in. Of course, she was immediately, like, mortified. That I was <laughs> um, and as every I see of regrets that she ever did that, she ever sent it away and found out about it. Um, but it, and it's obviously it was as, you know, an immigrant, it was the, it was a way to get in legally into America and get a, a window into Hollywood, which. I would never have been able to get. So it was it, one, it was a practical and two, it was, you know, an educational element as well, but it turned out to be a great, as Al said, the, the Peter Stark program was sort of, it covered a lot of different subjects. And so you, it allowed you to find the area of the business that was most suitable for, for the use. And for me, it was definitely the revelation that, that screenplays and writing were at the key and at the heart of, of movies and, and the business. Yeah, that, the, the joke was, how do you be a producer? You know, you know a writer. So we just thought, why don't you just be a writer? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. What What about when you first realized that you guys would work really well together? Because I'm not sure if your team passed on the information to you that our community, they're mostly writers and a majority are writers of novels. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so over here, our listeners, they love taking action. And I've seen a lot of questions from finding the right critique partner to even finding the right co-author for you. And you guys seem to have this incredible dynamic, this bond with each other. How'd you know that you guys were going to be each other's one? Well, I think it, I mean, we were friends first. So, okay. you know, so I think and, and we have, you know, very similar taste in in movies, things that we like. So so in terms of the Venn diagram of where we met on a taste level and the kind of movies we liked and kind of movies we wanted to do, we definitely we crossed over so that when we took a screenwriting class in film school and we partnered up and what every person was supposed to do was write the first 25 pages of a screenplay and then an outline for the rest of it. So I did one, Miles did one, then you become each other's critiquing partners. And Miles' screenplay was, frankly, a much more commercial idea. And he, over the summer, uh, we have internships, and he had one in marketing, which was very smart because I had one in development. And when you have one in development, what you spend your day doing is reading a lot of scripts and you spend your nights writing what's called coverage on those scripts so that executives can 
see, here's a synopsis, here's what you think of it. So they don't have to read every script that comes across their desk. They, they have a lot of readers. So Miles' script called Mango, he finished it and basically we sold it while we were still in film school. Wow. So, so that's, that was, uh, that was kind of it. So we, we got, uh, we called it our tuition to learn how to write. So it was a, it was a huge lucky break for yeah. us. Yeah. Okay. Do you mind sharing a bit what Mango is about? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a different time. And it was our first, our first screenplay. And there's a lot of caveats here, just to the fact that it was very, you know, we were producers and very commercial and very young. So the idea is bizarre and crazy. It is a buddy cop movie about a cop and an orangutan. And the premise is that the cop is like the slob and like the animal and the orangutan is going to like the gentleman and the. is the perfect gentleman. I, I describe it as it's actually Miles's view of America as a young Brit coming over. Yeah. So he was sort of. <laughs> You know, like, who are these who are these crazy you know, people and um, this insane society? But it was and there was a time. And again, this was in the early 90s in Hollywood that uh, studios were buying a lot of spec scripts, meaning scripts you write on spec and then you go out to the market and you sell them. And they were selling three a day for a lot of money. Because what was happening at that time was that a lot of bigger companies, it's like a, a script gold rush. Yeah, it was a script gold rush, and you know, because you know, that's when you know, Ted Turner bought New Line, and and you know, Sony was being bought. They were all being bought by bigger companies, and there was sort of a, a influx of cash, and they wanted to make more movies. So it, it happened to just be a, a perfect time to be a young screenwriter in Hollywood, and also we happened to go out with the screenplay to the the market. The weekend after Ace Ventura opened, so which was, was a, a huge oh. surprise. So it was, so it was, it was serendipity in terms yeah. of it was an animal comedy. That was an animal comedy, yeah. not really, but it kind of was. Yeah, and it was just it was it never got made, but it said allowed us. We didn't have to get part time jobs. We could really spend the next three years focused on writing because that really was our first screenplay. We really didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, in terms of of the you know, the craft of writing. And that's what we've been doing ever since is really working on the craft. It's obviously a, a, an ongoing process. And, um, and and we treated it like, you know, like a job. We'd get together every day. We'd write from nine to six. We'd take an hour for lunch. We also worked, we worked seven days, we worked seven days a week because at the time we were both single. Um, and, and we wrote, I think, four more specs. We sold another one, which also didn't get made. But, you know, as you know, the, the more you do it, the, you know, you learn a lot and the better you get. So, so that was really, um, a really bad The original time. question in terms of how we met. So we met because we were friends. We met because we had this very similar interests. Um, well, in movies. Yeah. We were actually very different people in terms of Al's interest in things I'm not interested in. And uh, anything we, well, we share is we have no interest in sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's true. So we, it's never, never a problem on working on Saturday or Sunday because we've, we have never watched. We yeah. always take great pride in working on Super Bowl weekend. When you mentioned right on spec, that's not something that's ever really brought up on this podcast because they focus okay. more on novel writing. Could you go ahead and share what that means? 
Absolutely. It's when you when you write a screen, you as a writer, you sit down and you write a speculative screenplay, which means nobody's nobody's hired you to write it. Nobody's commissioned you to write it. You are writing it for yourself. And then what you then have the opportunity to do when that script is done is to take it out to the marketplace, in this case, to the to the studios. And you need an agent to do this. And the agent will take the script out and submit it you know, usually all at the same time, usually over a weekend. And what you hope for is that, you know, at least one studio wants to buy it. Ideally, a couple studios want to buy it, which then cause a bidding war and could potentially drive the price of the screenplay up. Um, so that that's really what the... I will say that obviously in terms of novels, most novels are written are on spec. spec. Yeah, spec exactly. No one's paying. I mean, obviously, if you're established author you get in advance right and that's the money you have to write you know the book but usually certainly if you're starting out as a novelist you're writing on spec yeah and what's weird in hollywood is that people really don't like to write on spec anymore it's it's something that is not frowned upon but people don't do it there's a sort of lack of originality a lack of uh incentive to do so it, it you, you know and once again as the business has really evolved you know and it's become a lot more about underlying source material and IP, whether that be, you know, comic books or old movies or old TV shows or, or graphic novels. novels or novels. So it, it, the, the business has moved more towards that as opposed to original screenplays, you know, and when you look back, even in the recent history of Hollywood, you know, Star Wars was an original screenplay. Indiana Jones was an original screenplay. Back to the Future, The Terminator, all these things that have since become franchises where at one point original idea, original screenplays versus, you know, based on a comic book, graphic novel, novel. Um, so that's something that that's definitely changed. And, you know, obviously um, television has exploded over the last, you know, certainly over the last five years with streaming. And you see a lot more writers sort of working in that medium versus movies. Perfect. Thank you so much for getting into that. How'd you guys end up getting your agent? We were in film school and we had a lot of friends who were assistants at agencies. And so what you do is you try to get, you know, it's like anything. You're always trying to get your foot in the door. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, starting out, it's a big hustle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have hustle and network and use your friends and every contact you have and try and break through to get your material read. That was a very it took us six months, of, and we were right here in Hollywood with lots of people who we knew who were connected. Yeah, um, you know, they were all junior, but it still really helped us, and we had to sort of activate them and get the script read. And eventually, we did get it read by actually a guy who was just starting out, and he really liked it. Yeah. From the world of novel writers, what I'm hearing all the time constantly is you have your manuscript and then you email, you do the query letter to pitch to the literary agent. So for you, right. it's sounding instead of it's not really common to directly just hit up that agent to possibly represent you. Yeah, I think you have to tee it up. You, guess what? You can absolutely send a letter. They send it to an agency. But what will happen is it'll go to the mailroom. Some junior reader will read it. And the chances of it moving up is hard. So what you try to do is, again, as Miles said, when we were younger and we had a lot of friends who were assistants or, or junior agents or managers, is to get them to read it 
and recommended to an agent. And that's what happened. We got a guy who had just left an agency who had just became, become a manager, which was a new thing back then. And he got it to a boutique agency, a fellow by the name of David Warden, who represented Sam Hamm, who wrote Batman, and Jeff Archer, who wrote Sleepless in Seattle. So at the, at the time, these were you know some big clients, and he really liked the script. So he became our first agent. Mm-hmm. And then he, we were able to sell it with him. Yeah, I will say that you know before we did that, and this is always the we say this in terms of it was a lesson we learned as young writers, not going out with the material until it's ready, and it's really being open to the feedback and really, really working the drafts until it's ready, which is still something I think even now it's like oh, what it's ready and it's actually not. So it's for us, it's getting a network of people we trust with good taste who will be honest with us. And at this point in our careers, we really want honesty, which is hard to get sometimes because people think they're going to offend us. Or, But it's something that every writer needs and craves. And I think it's the learning process for particularly for young writers is actually to take the criticism and, and really understand that there is a problem that needs to be solved in their, in their story. Yeah. Um, so we always had this rule that if if – Three people had the same note, then it had to be addressed. It's a problem rather than a, rather than an opinion. Right. Um, so it's really it's really asking yourself as well and trying to be as honest as you can about the, the reception of the, of the screenplay or novel or, or story and figuring out the fixes to make the story and the, 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 the whole piece work. And that's something we really – still struggle with in terms of finding people who can tell us that and get getting the and not burning through the contacts. Yeah. You know, you get one people we always say you can ask somebody to read your manuscript once, you know, because it's a, it's a, it's it's a sacrifice for them. And yeah. they're gonna sit down and give you, you know, two hours of their time to tell you what they think and give you notes and, and thoughts and ideas and perspective. And you can't go back to them with you know two weeks later with the with the fixes they oh read it again. We never do that. Um so it's just getting that ongoing feedback and making sure that when it does go out, when you, you do go to that person who could make or break your career, you get that you, you're in front of an agent or somebody who can actually get it going, that the screenplay, the book, the manuscript is in its best shape, that you have done the drafts, you've done the work, and you haven't, it's not three drafts from where it should be, you know it's, it's not going to get any better than that. So I think that's always the... It's it's really really working it and making that honest decision within yourself that yeah it's ready we've done everything we fixed it it's 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 ready to go obviously it's it's always organic it's, it's nothing's ever perfect but you can certainly solve the glaring problems of a story and character and each dialogue or whatever it is and that's and that's about getting the feedback and and reacting to it honestly. Oh, thank you so much for that. This also reminds me of when you mentioned that you guys, right after you guys graduated, sold Mango, your script that you wrote together, you started to commit to it like a nine to five. You just meet up every day and you keep writing and you continue writing and you keep improving your craft. Were you ever taking workshops in addition to that or additional classes? Were you accessing even like craft writing books to strengthen your own writing? Yes to both. I mean, there were a, a fair amount of screenplay books. There was uh, the famous one is sort of screenplay by Sid Field. The other called Making a Good Script Great, which was actually super helpful. Linda Seeger. Linda Seeger. And then 
interestingly, before I even came to Hollywood, when I still uh, lived in New York, I took uh, a class, a weekend seminar by this guy, Robert McKee, called Story Structure. He has since published a book, but he um, he used to hold this two day seminar all day long. And it was utterly fascinating because I had never seen a movie broken down like that, never seen a screenplay. Um, so that was great. But then after we graduated film school and we were writing. After we sold out yeah, sold two scripts. Two scripts. We took a UCLA extension course in sitcom writing. And it was it was actually great. We met a lot of people in the class who have gone on to have very you know good careers writing comedies. But for us, it was just you know, we wanted to kind of, you know, learn about that, that form because sit, writing sitcoms is certainly different than writing our dramas or writing features. Our dramas and features are very similar. You know what I mean? They're, they're that, that, that was in the same world. And we were looking for a way to get a little more comedy into our drama. And that course was, um, was actually really invaluable. Oh, I love that because I um I also took two classes actually from UCLA Extension, uh, one for screenwriting and one for novel writing. Oh, wow. Such a coincidence. Thank you so much for getting into that. I do want to jump right now a little bit to Double Exposure. This is your first book you ever wrote and you ever wrote together. It's kind of interesting because most people end up co-authoring, right, after they write their own novels and then they come together with a friend or a colleague. So this is something that's really familiar for you guys because you've been working together for so long. So where did this idea come up from? Yeah, Well, here's it started. We were and this was 10 years ago and we were hired to adapt a book called I Am Number Four uh, for DreamWorks that was uh, written by James Fry. And James had started a company called Full Fathom Five, where he was going to sort of- James is a- Yeah, James is a big, big famous novelist, Million Little Is Bright Shiny Morning. Um, And he, you know, was was setting up this company and he was looking to, you know, get more novels published and, and things like that. And he, he asked us, he said, do you guys have an idea for a novel? Because um, it's something I could help you with. We had a great experience um, adapting that book. Because what was interesting with I'm Number Four is we got a very early manuscript. And as we were breaking the movie, James really, you know, we talked to him a lot. He liked what we were doing and he wanted to incorporate those changes um, into the book before the book was You're public. You're kidding. I never yeah. heard of that. Yeah. No, wow. no, no. no. And, and nor did we, but we were like, you know, it was something that, you know, when we read it, because we were talking to him, we said, look, this is how we'd approach it as a movie. Here are some of the things that, you know, we'd like to, that we'd like to change. And then he would be like, you know what, that's a really good idea. I want to do that in the book because he wanted the book to be, you know, as close to the movie as it could be. Obviously, they're never perfect. But you know what I mean? It was more close. And it was, and again, they had bought a very early version of the book. Like it was literally like a first draft. So, um, so working with him on that, and then we'd had this idea, you know, for a character and, you know, we, you know, we always loved Indiana Jones. We love sort of global thrillers, um, you know, and this was the, the idea was, I think was great about Indiana Jones and was kind of a revelation, you know, when we were kids was he was an archaeologist. 
I didn't know what an archaeologist did when I was 13 years old. And then you see him classroom and then he's an action hero and he takes a punch. But what he's doing is very specific and very interesting. So, you know, we, we looked at it. We go, what is a character who has a specificity to his job, which feels like it could ultimately be a franchise character like Indiana Jones, like Robert Langdon in, in The Da Vinci Code? You know what I mean? Like, I, I love that book. I am not a fast reader. I think I read that book on vacation in two days. I had no idea what a symbiologist was, but it was very cool and it was very specific. So what we did and we said, what is a job that feels almost antithetical to an action hero? So it also speaks to us and 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 our interests and our interests reflects, you know, our love of movies and movie history and sort of like the, the genre of it all. But also obviously is a is a throwback to the the novels that we love in terms of the thrillers, yeah. uh, the John McDonald books and things like that as well. So it sort of has a, a repulsive narrative and a drive, a, a page turning airport novel yes. quality um, that is just a fun fun read. Yeah. So so we so we came up with this character, uh, David Toland, who was the uh, first director of preservation for the Library of Congress's National Archives in 1960. And here's the first myth of that. The Library of Congress didn't actually start preserving movies until the late 80s. And the first director of preservation wasn't really until the 90s. The list now, you know, that list they put out every year for the Library of Congress is only 20 years old, by the way. So um, but we, we sort of love that idea that here was here was a guy who had this very specific job. Um, and then you find out in this past, you know, was a was a Korean War vet and somebody who kind of wanted to leave that part of his life behind and have this simple life doing something that he loved. And then the CIA comes comes calling because they need his very specific skill set. And then that pulls them into this sort of, you know, globe trotting actor thriller. Oh, wow. OK, so how is the research process for this? You know, what's interesting is we wrote this book a long period of time. Like you do something, put it down, you'd come back to it. And we did a bunch of research. Google is an amazing thing. So they can really, it's amazing how much you can actually find online now, which was, which was fascinating. At the time we had an office at Disney, we had assistants, we were able to get them to help us with research. So, um, it, it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of research, but sometimes we say we want to know just enough to make it up. So that's how we were able to kind of, you know, lay out the story, we knew what the, you know, the big turns were. And then we would sort of fill in things that we knew. And we always wanted it to have this, you know, overlay. Like it, <laughs> you, you felt like you were in one of those movies as you were going through the story. You know what I mean? So yes, like, yes. There's, there's a lot of, you know, Ian Fleming, the third man, you know, all, all of the Hitchcock. Absolutely. You know, it's a lot of North by Northwest. So, you know, we definitely wanted it to have that vibe. We didn't want it to be something you know, you want you want the stakes to be real and obviously, you know, feel the tension, but you also wanted it to be fun. Yeah. And that and that was a big that was really a big key for us. What was the most difficult part about writing this? I think the the most difficult part was, you know, when we were when we were breaking the story, because because we did a very extensive outline for it, I think. You know, when we started, we would always think of it, obviously, in movie terms. And then you realize, oh, there's more that you can do. You can flesh this out more. 
Um, and this, you know, this is where James was helpful as well. He said, you know, you, you can go, you can go down these roads, things that you think I, movies teach you to write very economically because it's a very specific box that you're writing in. So, so I think yeah, a, a screenplay has to be no more than 120 pages. Yeah. It should be short. Yeah. It should be shorter. Whereas the, whereas the novel, which is the, the great thing about a novel, it can be, it can be 900 pages and that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be unless this one's not. <laughs> a genius. Um, so, so I, I think for us, it was that, you know, it was that ability to kind of, you know, take some of those sort of side, side roads that you can't normally take. And also with, with an irresponsible screenwriting, you can't write a globetrotting adventure because <laughs> they'll never get made because it's too expensive to produce. Right. So what's great about a novel is that those sort of like financial boundaries go, they're, yes. they're out. They have complete freedom yeah. to make it to a story which is can go anywhere. Yeah. So that's you don't have to worry about the, the financial repercussions of a of a car chase in the streets right. or you know how many how many locations you're going to yeah. you know all so can you just give us a snapshot of what it's like in your your room where you guys are writing together? Like how does this work? Do you guys assign each other a certain role? Like you take care of this, I'll take care of that. And I can't help but wonder what was the major differences you noticed between co-authoring a novel versus writing a script together. And did your roles kind of shift and change? Well, you know, it's interesting because having written together for 25 years, even as a, even as screenwriters and, and TV writers, you know, our writing process evolved. When we first started, we would literally sit in the same room, which is ideally how we do it. but. Um, you know, we'd sit in the same room, we'd break all the stories together, and then we would we would start writing. Um, and and it sort of evolved like we would do, I think at first, like I would do some, the dialogue, Miles would write more of the color. But then, you know, as we've been running TV shows and being around the world, like then we take different passes at drafts and things like that. And I think because this was always, frankly, a hobby, you know what I mean? We didn't, we would literally do it and put it down for long periods of time as I think we come back to it and we take a crack at one section and then sort of give it, you know, look, have each other go back and forth on it. I mean, it was, it was really, it was really that kind of situation more than, um, you know, sitting in the yeah, same, every, every writing writer has their own process and every writing team has, has their own process and the process sort of evolved and, you know, it's really, it's oddly indefinable in terms of what we do now. Yeah. Sort of become, yeah. We've actually spent the last four years being in different countries. We were making a show in New Zealand and making a show in, in Dublin and Ireland. And we were, so we were separated globally, you know, for many months. Um, and it was very interesting in terms of, of how that worked. And right. It is the, the miracle of computing now. Modern yeah. Which is amazing. Emails and, and just the ability to, communicate and to write great distances has been really uh, a revelation for us. If you have come into issues where you're, you just can't see eye to eye, how do you get through it? How do you figure out which direction to go? Who's right? Or you compromise? I mean, usually if we have a massive problem, which we never have never really had. No, we, we, have. Always, we always turn to pie. Yes. Always, um, yeah. Pie is a good, pie is a good burger. We, you know, what's interesting and, and, and again, we've seen a, a lot of different writing partnerships and we've had different writing teams on shows that we've done. And as Miles said, everyone works differently. I think the, for us, the best way to articulate it is I saw this music documentary on U2 when they were making Octung Baby. And they said, you know, how did how did 
how have you managed to stay together so long and work through all of the, and there's four of them. And Bono said, it's because we never, if somebody disagrees, we never try to, you know, jam them. It's not like, well, three of us agree and you don't. So what's wrong? It's more about what isn't working for you because if something's not working for you, it's something that we probably need to address. And so I think for us, it's never about trying to be right or things like that. It's just, if something's not working, you know, what is it? And we'll, you know, I would say nine times out of 10, arrive at a better solution. So I think that I would say I don't actually like writing a part. I find it a little stressful, but, um, and I will say that it, it, it's, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's what it is for us. It's, it's critical and it would be, not, it would not work for us if we weren't in the same room across the same table as we break the story. Yes. Which is the, I mean, this is where we I completely and fundamentally disagree with Stephen King in his book about writing which is his idea that writing is archaeology, that you just start and you uncover slowly the story and it emerges out of the out of the, the ground, which I think is actually irresponsible. I think as a writer, and maybe he's look, he's a genius. That, he's again, he can talk about it and he's a genius. So that's fine. Yeah. But mere mortals like the rest of us actually requires a lot of thought and thinking and uh, pre-thought. So we yeah. don't start any any screenplay or anything manuscript until we have really got a great structure, until we know where the characters are going. And we know and we know the ending. We know the ending, the yeah. themes. It doesn't mean things can things the journey can can change and characters take you different different places and there are different incidents that can happen on that journey. Yeah. But we really have a really very solid idea of what the story is, what the structure is. Yeah. The, and, and the, 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 the emotional journey of the characters, the themes of the story, again, they can change as you write. Yeah. But the idea of just starting a story with the two of us sitting here and just, that's impossible. Yeah. Um, it's just, you, you sort of, we, we find that in that structure, once you have that sort of superstructure, it allows you to be more creative because you might discover a scene that you're, you know, oh, we could do this scene. But what you know is that your story architecture is sound so that it works. And then it gives you the freedom to play within that structure. And you're not trying to solve big, what I would call, you're not trying to solve math problems mm-hmm. while you're writing. So I think, I yeah, think and also once you've, you know, if you've written, you know, vast, vast chapters of something yeah. that doesn't work, that's much more, yeah. you know, heartbreaking and soul destroying to go back and rewrite all that than versus fixing it in, in the outline stage. Yeah. And then the story breaking stage. And that, and that's really where we try to solve. So when people say, you know, do you have writer's block? No. Sometimes you have story, story issues when, when you're breaking a story that you have to talk through and kind of solve. But, um, you know, that's real because people say they have writer's block. They really have story block. It means they haven't thought something through about the, the story. Um, oh, they, they shouldn't have launched into it. They shouldn't yeah. have started. They, they started before they, yeah. Before they knew that it, actually the story could be cooked. Yeah. So it's like, it's the, it's, they weren't, they weren't being honest with themselves. It's premature because <laughs> it's always that excitement. you got an idea. We do this all the time. We, yeah. you, know, you have an idea, think, oh, fantastic. And then you know, we sit down for a day and talk about it and realize, oh, oops, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, we might come back to it and and figure it out three years later, but at that point it's like, oh no. Yeah. Because you sound like you guys are masters at plotting and just figuring out the entire key skeleton outline. What's the most important tip that you can share with the listeners who are trying to move from pantser to plotter? It does depend what genre you're doing. Yeah. Um, there's certainly a, a role for 
purely literary novels that are more about the beauty of the writing, which is something, uh, rather than the narrative flow and plot. Um, I, I think I think a truly great novel has both myself and a plot that is deeply thematic and emotional and relates to character is for us something that very yeah. inter- interests us. And it's really finding the the way forward with the, starting with character. Why is that character interesting? Why is that character worthy of your time and the and importantly the reader's time? Why are we going to invest in this person? And why is that journey interesting? So that's where we always start. We start with character, and then we start creating a story around that character. Um, and an intriguing, you know, what if? I mean, I think for a novel, I want to be sucked into a novel within the first three pages and be taken to to a different place and and really be surprised by the story. I mean, that's obviously delighted by the writing, but surprised by the story and wrapped up in the character. So, if it, you know, I love, you know, Michael Connolly, I think he's a great writer because his plots are, are tight, but the characters are very interesting, dynamic and sympathetic and also flawed as well. So it's looking for flaws. So we always, we always sit down and talk about the character, talk about the flaws, the theme, what's their emotional journey going to be, and you know where they start at the beginning, where they end up at the end. Yeah. And what is that? What's the most intriguing story that you can surround them with that takes them there? So, and also I think you look at we look at uh, genre. What genre are we going to? Is yeah. the is this story? Yeah. So that so the, 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 the double exposure is a you know really a Cold War thriller, but yeah. it's but also fits into the it's it's a it's a thriller. It's a, yeah. it's a spy thriller. It's a Hitchcockian thriller. It's yeah. Indiana Jones like. It's an airport novel. It's all sorts of things. So once we hit the sort of Venn diagram of what it is, then we begin to construct the story around that. What are elements of, of, of those things that fit that genre? So we look at it as a genre and how is it not just a retread, but how does it elevate the genre or, yeah. or add something to that genre? Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Talking about Cold War era and the elements of your story, how, how do you think that translate over to things that are going on right now in this day? And how do you think it'll best speak to readers? Well, I think it's about a guy who who had sort of lived a life of violence, had been a soldier and was trying to get out of that and retreat. But but realizing that you can't hide from the world, that as much as we'd all like to just stay in our bubble, that there is a certain sense of engagement that you <laughs> that you have to do. Um, and then it it obviously plays with things because, you know, we love who doesn't love a good conspiracy theory. The idea of, you know. Are there elements in the government that are that are working against, you know, American democracy, which is something I think we can all relate to. Um, And, you know, so so it has so it has those themes. But it but it's really about, you know, a man who's been trying to hide, who really gets called back into action um, for for a great cause, ultimately. And he has to find his real purpose. He hasn't been, you know, being sort of the fullest expression of who he should be. You know, he saw, he was, he was doing one thing. He felt like he was a pawn, you know, he was a, you know, sharpshooter, you know, and a Navy SEAL, you know, and in, in the war and now he's been hiding, but how can he sort of use both of his skills and become a, you know, a fuller person? 
So and, and what what happens is, as he's going through this journey, it starts to activate those parts of him that he buried away that he never wanted to see again. So it's also a little bit of a commentary on violence and, you know, how do you how much, you know, who are you? How much of that is trained? How much of that is innate to your person? Um, it's also, I mean, that's one part of, yeah, it, yeah. Terms of the character part. Also for us, it's like it's escapism. Yes, it's, it's really it's it's a it's a story that is hopefully entertaining and take and is surprising. It takes you on a journey you don't expect. Um, and obviously hits classic conspiracy theories Theory, as yeah. well. And it also, it's just, yeah. It, I mean, the thing that we you know love about this genre is, you know, part of it is how much fun can you make the twists? Yeah. You know, it's called double exposure. Nobody's who, who they say they are. So it's just how, how much fun can you have and how true to it, can you be? You never want to cheat those things. You want people to then be able to look back and go, oh, you know, the clues were there the whole time. I just didn't see it. So um, that's something else that we that we enjoy, too. Mm, incredible. OK, now that you've completed this book of yours, how do you feel now as a novelist? Do you feel like you're more interested in writing more and more novels? And is that something that you would love to focus on uh, in the near future? Or is this something that you feel like mm, you're still going to continue forward with the screenwriting world? Well, ideally, we'd do both. I mean, it's, been, <laughs> yes. it's been, like, yes. if you have the time, you guys are so busy. Know, yeah. That's always the problem. It's really about the time. And it's it's uh, it's hard because, you know, exactly. We're sort of the film, you know, we're showrunners and television producers and, and feature writers. So it's hard to, like I said, th this one was spread out over a long period. So <laughs> it was, um, you know, it's hard to find the, it's hard to find the time. We've, we've had a couple other friends who are screenwriters who have written books. And then when they go to write the second book, they're like, Oh my God, I don't know when I can. Cause then suddenly guess what? You're not doing it for fun and pulling it in and out no, of your drawer. Nope. You're now it's contracts point. and deadlines. Nope. Yes. Contracts and deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and all, I'm sure you guys also have families now, because I know you said in yeah, the beginning yeah. you were writing like crazy, but you guys were single. But now it's like, OK, do you ever want to see your family, too? You know, yeah. so it's like, oh, God. Yeah. That's right. That's we, and we, you know, we have, you know, we did this uh, television show based on the Shinar Chronicles, which, you know, Terry Brooks, who is an amazing writer, has been writing the Shinar books for 40 years. And he writes a book a year. But that's what he does. He writes a book a year. You know, that's a full time job. So, yeah, so in an ideal world, we'd love to. And it's just, you know, let's we're excited to see people's reception to the book and, and hopefully we'll see what happens. But, yeah, definitely. Oh, I'm so excited for you guys. This is very, very exciting. Um, and this is something I do ask a lot of authors on the show as well, if we do have time. And I do want to squeeze it in since we did touch a little bit that you guys do have families now. How do you guys find the time to be the family guy and also show up for your for your loved ones, but also obviously show up at work? So how are you able to find that? I mean, I don't really like the word balance. You just kind of have to make it work. But how do you make it work? Because really, you guys are insanely crazy busy. <laughs> I'm just like, wait, what? Well, it's, I think it's definitely been it's been very, very difficult for us. Um, so there's no question about that. Because I mean, when we said we worked every day for we worked every every day for probably 15 years. Um, so just writing. Yeah. And, and doing, and when you're the showrunner of a TV show, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. You're running us, you're running not, not a very small business. You're usually running a hundred million dollar business. So with hundreds of employees, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of work and you, you know, you have very, uh, 
forgiving spouses and <laughs> children sometimes aren't so forgiving, but, <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, we, we get to do what we love. There's, there's no, we're not, no one should feel sorry for us. It's just, it's just definitely there are, everyone has sacrifices to make and it's a, a very competitive business. And we, and I think we, we have to work very hard to stay at the top of this business. And that's what we do. We, we really work hard and, and it's about for us about pursuing those ideas and, it couldn't be a better creative expression and outlet. So we're very fortunate to have that as our as our career and our life. But it certainly has has come at a price, a little bit of a price. Um, but you know, I think it's 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 been worth it. Okay, fair enough. So why don't we wrap it up with the last question? How do you feel like you've evolved as writers? I think we certainly we can hone in on an idea better. You know, some, sometimes when you're younger, you have an idea, you think it's going to be great. You break a story, you start writing, sometimes you get a draft and then you realize, oh, the script doesn't work. So I think I think our sort of muscle to be able to evaluate an idea, you know, start to explore it, kick the tires on it, see see if it's going to work, have gotten a lot better. Um, So I think that's something that's definitely helped, you know, and that that, again, just comes from doing it and just comes from having that muscle. Those are a a lot less precious. I mean, I I don't think we're ever we're we're never that precious in terms of getting notes. But now it's like we just. Yeah. People and particularly, you know, in the business of TV and getting notes from network executives, they can be coy. Just just tell us us what the problem is and we can fix it. So it's just it's it's a fearlessness about. Anything can be fixed. You just need to know what the problem is. Yeah. If there's a problem they're having, sometimes it's, it's a taste issue or whatever it is. Sometimes we can disagree with it. It doesn't mean we're going to just cave. But it's a it's a sense that we just need the honest feedback and we can we can make it happen and we fix can, it. Yeah. And, and I think we've also gotten an ability to figure out, you know, a lot of times when studio executives or something are giving notes. They don't always articulate the note. You know, they clearly have an issue, but they don't quite articulate the note or they'll try to be prescriptive in how to fix the note. But it's just trying to understand what the note is. And, and we found when we work with younger writers, they can just get pinballed all over the place because they're not actually understanding what the executives are asking. So I think that's that's another. You, you do it long enough and you can get a sense. And then you just, you know, sometimes they're just trying. They think you're going to be upset and you're just no, be honest, tell us what it is or tell us what's not working. And, and it's always difficult. It. It's, it is difficult getting notes. I think yeah. it's, it's still difficult, difficult. It's just, it's always like, oh, are they going to hate it? I think it's any, any writer has that yes. innate self-doubt about their work. It's about who they are. Yes. But it's always that, oh, you know, know. You, you think it's good and then you're yeah. not sure. You just, you, here's the thing. And it's like, when you, it's like when you give it to somebody to read in your head, uh, I'm always like, I know it's the best version right now. Like I don't, I can't think of any more issues with it. But I know as soon as somebody reads it and brings stuff up, it's gonna be like, oh, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> it's girding yourself up for the rewriting because as you know, writing is rewriting. So it's sort of girding yourself for that process, but also being you know open to it. Yeah, and and enjoying the. It's I don't actually the process is necessary because it's enjoy the process. I think that's difficult to do. Yeah, but it's enjoying the moments. It's enjoying. And celebrating finishing the first draft. That's yeah. always exhilarating. That's incredible when you finish yeah. the first draft of anything. And then when you, you, you sell something, you do it. Like if you don't take time to celebrate the, the small victories and sometimes big victories, it's like, why are you doing it? Yeah, because guess so what? Just, just getting just getting the book 
until yeah. just get get an agents of celebration. Yeah. Finishing the first drafts of celebration, finishing the outlines of celebration. Yeah. Then getting it published. And then it's like then you get, you know, the critics hate it or whatever. So it's, <laughs> there'll always be some take the joy. Somebody out. always so yeah, it's <laughs> but does every 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 part of that journey, every step of that journey is a, is a triumph and the, that many people don't get to, to experience and to enjoy. So it's, it's always realizing, acknowledging and being grateful for the fact that we're writers, that that's a privilege and it's a privilege to do that as our living. So I think that's always the, sometimes you need to stay, take a step back and remember that and just acknowledge and be grateful. So that's what we, we sometimes forget to do me in particular. Al and Miles, where can listeners find you online? We're both on Instagram, Instagram. and yeah. we have we have our, our new website. Yeah, the new website, and and you're going to ask, and I don't remember what it is. <laughs> That's it. Um, as you can tell, we're super savvy with social media. media. Uh, and both on Twitter. My Twitter is at Real Al Goff at the Real Al Goff, and my. Instagram, I think, is a golf Alfred because I don't know why. When I said that, that's just what it <laughs> my is. Instagram is Miles. The, the little like slash underscore underscore Miller. Miller. Yeah, and then and Miller, Miller's with an A. Yeah, and then mine's like Miles Miller at Twitter, right? Yeah, I think, at yeah. Miles Miller. Yeah. yeah, and now our website is Miller Golf Inc. Yeah, I N A. And that wraps up our episode with Alfred and Miles. Thank you both so much for your time and for giving us a sneak peek into the world of screenwriting. You shared such helpful, actionable advice that our community can apply to their own careers. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to also drop by and say hi to Alfred over on Twitter at TheRealAlGoff and say hi to Miles at MilesMiller. And don't forget to head over to their show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Alfred-Goff-Miles-Miller to find all the resources and books mentioned in their episode, along with the timestamps of highlights throughout the conversation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I am so excited about our partnership with Four Sigmatic. Growing up with an Asian immigrant upbringing from both my Taiwanese roots and my Malaysian roots, I'm all too familiar with eating and drinking herbs and roots in our teas, soups, and even desserts. That's all super common in Chinese medicine where non-toxic plants, otherwise known as adaptogens, are believed to help our body like boosting the immune system and soothing muscle cramps to improving brain function and alleviating anxiety. I found Four Sigmatic at a grocery store and immediately recognized the names of the different herbs and mushrooms I grew up having like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, and chaga. Four Sigmatic specializes in these herbal drinks that support our immunity, energy, and longevity and help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. I'm honestly incredibly impressed at how creative they can get with their blends. I'm talking about infusing these superfoods into mainstream products, including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, hot cacaos, matcha, superfood blends, and this makes it really accessible to those of you who've never tried them before. I know there's a ton of you coffee drinkers in our community, so you're going to love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane that, get this, supports productivity, focus, and creativity. I even read that lion's mane have been used by Buddhist monks for thousands of years to help focus during meditation. I couldn't recommend a more perfect drink to switch out your usual go-to drink to kickstart the day with super-focused writing sprints, for example. 
The mushroom coffee with Lion's Mane is made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans and tastes just like coffee. Y'all know I'm a tea drinker, but I've tried this several times with different enhancers like oat milk, and I also swear by ghee butter and add that to nearly everything. So I tried the ghee with this mushroom coffee, and I love the nuttier flavor and creamier texture that it gives it. All of Four Sigmatic's drinks are super easy to make. Just rip open their single-serve packets, add hot water, and voila. I need to also recommend their other drink called Mushroom Hot Cacao Mix with Reishi. Oh my god, this one tastes just like a cup of hot chocolate that also comes with the benefits of reducing stress. And okay, just one more rec. Y'all, they freaking have a mushroom matcha drink. I cannot even. All right, I'm going to stop right here because I can go on. So do me a solid and head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash 88 cups of tea and explore all their different products. I am super pumped that they created a special offer of 15% off for our storytellers. So head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea or use our discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Thank you for supporting a brand that believes in the future of 88 Cups of Tea. And I want to hear what you think about the drink. So tag me at 88 Cups of Tea to let me know. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.